Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, Avoiding Infection, humans are naturally conditioned to avoid infection. It's disgusting. But as it turns out, this natural inclination might be the very thing that needs to be avoided in a church that's marked by mercy instead of sacrifice. Let's turn now to the fourth part of our series, Tackling Purity Culture. Well, there's not, nothing quite as disgusting as starting in the middle of a, of a landfill, right? I, there's a smell that comes just by seeing the landfill. There's that, that sloshy liquid or soil that's always below your feet. And I remember one time I had to go to the landfill after emptying out my mother's basement from a flood, and, and it was flooding. Uh, it was rain everywhere, and so my tires just got deep down in that. You know, I don't know how many layers of people's trash we just dug up, but that's exactly where we're going to start today, right in the middle of the landfill. And this is that the series that I've been doing, this Avoiding Infection series, is the series that we've been talking about, the intersection between faith and disgust, and that disgust mechanism in our life. And I think you probably know this by now. But a lot of what we have been discussing is really metaphorical in nature, right? It's not, it's not real harm and damage that's done to our body. Now, if you were actually living in or standing in a landfill this morning, you probably should have a disgust mechanism that's safe for you. That, that's good. You should have that, hold that, live into it, because there's some disgusting things around that you need to get out of your body. But think about this for just a minute. Even the description of a landfill, as I did it just a minute ago, started to raise some of those emotions in you, didn't it? Even the metaphor of a landfill and all the the gross things that go into it can start to create the disgust mechanism that rises up. So there's something about this metaphor that presses beyond reality, and it starts to really transform the way we live our lives and we live into the world. And the danger zone that exists is when we do this in all other areas of our lives. So there's a physical disgust that's important, but when it starts to move out of that realm and into the realm of social disgust, we're going to talk about that next week, moral disgust, which I'll get to in just a few minutes, and religious disgust, which we talked about the last few weeks, that's where it becomes a problem. This is where the metaphor goes a little bit too far. And even though I spent the last couple weeks in this sort of religious zone talking about death and talking about the incarnation and how our disgust responses really challenge some of our comfort theology there and, and really challenge what what proper theology should be. I'm going to move us away from that today and talk a little bit more about morality. And as you probably could have guessed, there's a lot of metaphors involved here. Uh, and there's a lot of metaphors when it comes to morality, when it comes to sin and grace and how we engage in that in the world. In fact, if you go through a study of Scripture, the idea of sin and grace is such a large concept that there are more than 20 metaphors that are used to describe sin and grace in Scripture. More than 20 that are used over and over again. There's a variety of them. You've got the financial metaphor. You know, it's a debt that reserves a payment. You've got the, uh, the sort of seeking metaphor. We were lost, but Jesus found us. You've got the health metaphor that we were sick, but now we're well, right? The familiar, we were orphaned, now we've been adopted. There's all kinds of metaphors that are laced throughout Scripture. In fact, I think there's around 22. I don't want to give you that final number because there may be another one that sneaks in, but I think there's around 22 metaphors in Scripture that help us understand this and identify it. But there's one metaphor that seems to rise above all the others. 
There's one metaphor that when you start to think about sin and, and, and grace and that in our lives, it rises sort of to the, pi- to the top of the pile in terms of all the metaphors that are out there. And we as human beings tend to, not always, but we tend to privilege or prefer this metaphor over others that might be there. Now, without me telling you what that metaphor is, I just want to play a little game with you and demonstrate how powerful this metaphor is for you. So I'm not going to tell you what it is, but what I want you to do for the next couple minutes is I want you to think in your life of an instance where you have felt like you sinned, right? You may not like that, that language. That's the language I'm going to use today, but use something that's more comfortable for you, right? You, you, you made a mistake, you crossed the line, you did whatever, like where is a sin? And just think about that moment for a minute. Think about where you were, think about what was happening, think about how you felt in the moment, and then how you felt afterwards, and just sort of draw that back into your remembrance. Everybody got it? Got that moment? Got that moment online? Good. Now, with only one letter, I want you to complete the word that's on the screen. What's the word? How many said soap? How many said soap? How many said soup? How many knew that soup was an option? (laughs) Now, those of you who said soup, here's what our inclination is. You couldn't get your mind off of lunch. That's what that is. You were just like plunging headfirst into lunch. Now, this is interesting. I did this, uh, this exercise with my wife, and this has actually been done on a large scale. The vast majority of people, after having an episode where they think about sin or an infraction in their life, they lean towards soap. They fill that in with soap. In fact, I did this with my wife, and she couldn't even figure out what the other one was. She was like, is it slop? So I was like, no, it's after the O, not before. Right? So, uh, but you know, this is how our minds work. And, and this kind of clues us in that the largest metaphor when it comes to our relationship with sin is a cleansing or a purity metaphor. That's where it lands. It's purity. This, we privilege purity above everything else. Sin is dirty. God comes in and makes us clean. Sin is a contaminant. God comes in and makes us pure. And there's a couple of problems with our prioritization of this or the way that we push this above the others. It's not that this isn't in Scripture, and it's not that it's not important, but it's the ranking again with which we give it that becomes problem. And here's the problem. Purity alone doesn't explain the full complexity of morality in our world. That's why there's 22 metaphors in Scripture. If it did, there would be no reason to use other metaphors, other metaphors to describe sin and grace in our world. But it's just one of those 20-plus metaphors that get used over and over again in Scripture. But the other issue with our preferential option here and the reason that it becomes problematic when we lean into it is because every metaphor that we use, no matter what it is, is always subject to misinterpretation and abuse if it goes too far. We can misinterpret that metaphor. We can abuse that metaphor if we take it too far. In fact, the way I would say it is metaphors can distort reality as much as they can clarify it for us. Let me give you an example of this. We say all the times relationships are broken, don't we? We use that word. My relationship's broken, your relationship's broken, our relationship's broken. We say this constantly. Now, that's a metaphorical statement. That's how we're using it. It's a metaphor to apply it to a relationship. We also say, my car is broken. If you roll into Cis Family Ford this week with your relationship and walk up to the mechanic, you've made a mistake, right? Like, that's just a problem. Like, to assume that because your relationship is broken and your car is broken, and that is the place to fix your car, so obviously it must also be the place to fix your relationship, is a broken mentality. <laughs> like, you've taken the metaphor way too far, and no longer does the metaphor actually clarify the reality that you're living into, it distorts it. 
there's a problem with it as you've started to take it out. And so it doesn't illuminate or clarify it. It distorts it at the end. And this is precisely what's happening, I think, with purity metaphors as it relates to sin in the world. This is, how we've, we've, this is where we've come as a society. They are absolutely present in Scripture. And they're some of the earliest metaphors of sin and, and problems that we have in Scripture. But we prioritize them. And because we prioritize them, we've tended to take them too far. And in this way, I w- I'm going to argue today, we've done something that's very similar to what the Pharisees were doing in the passage in Matthew chapter 15 that we heard just a few minutes ago. The Pharisees encountered, or this particular group of Pharisees who Jesus encountered in Matthew 15, were taking the metaphor too far. And in this section, Jesus tackles that purity culture head on. And he's not, frankly, he's not particularly happy with it as he does it. Just a few minutes ago, you heard the second section of that passage, the passage that starts in verse 10 and goes all the way through verse 20. But the story actually begins in verse 1 when the Pharisees approach Jesus. In chapter 15, verse 1, the Pharisees come up to Jesus in this day and they start to interrogate Jesus about a behavior that their disciples or his disciples are participating in. And when they come up, here's what they say in verse 2, and we'll put it on the screen for you to, to see and hear or on the screen at home. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, we've talked about this in the past, but the tradition of the elders is the way in which religious groups of that time, the Jewish group at that time, had taken the Torah and interpreted its applicable points down through the centuries. And they've handed that on. So they took a piece of the Torah, they read it, they interpreted it, and they said, this is how it can be applied to your life, now do it. And a lot of people lived into what the tradition of the elders were. And this is the question, why do your disciples break what the elders have said, the tradition that they've handed on to us? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. Now, ritual purity, and I said this before, ritual purity is absolutely a metaphor that was established in Leviticus, and the Pharisees were right to to tap into it, to see it, and to live into it. And the tradition of the elders, this is where the problem came, the tradition of the elders gave preference to that metaphor, and they took it to its extreme, in the case that's listed right here. There was a religious obligation at that period in time to wash your hands before eating anything, and if you violate that ritual obligation, which was not necessarily the intent of the metaphor in Scripture, but if you violate it, then you are subject to willfully participating in sin, and when you willfully participate in sin, you are now ritualistically impure, right? You've crossed that barrier. You no longer have a purity around you. And in the next verse, Jesus actually demonstrates how absurd this really is, how absurd the Pharisees are being to question God in this way, and ultimately he shows them how this tradition is actually placing a burden on people that God never intended. And and I won't read all that today. Go back, read verses 1 through 9, and you'll see the full way that he unpacks that in this story. But the Pharisees took up this form of comfort theology in this passage and in their lifestyle that because the, the image that was offered to them was just too big to comprehend. They didn't quite gather it all. They didn't quite understand it all. And so sin, when in, in this case, seems way too big to manage for them, seems way outside of their comfort zone. They can't wrap their heads around. It's just too complex. It's too heady. It's too, it's too unmanageable. We need something practical to hold on to. We need something manageable to do, like washing our hands. Right? I can do that. This bigger idea of sin, it's hard for me to quite understand whether I'm crossing the line or not, whether I'm pure or not. I don't quite get all that, but I can manage this. And this is, this is what comfort theology is when it relates to sin and morality in our world and how we approach it. When it comes to sin, comfort theology causes us to sacrifice complex concepts for concrete clarity. Right? We just give up on the, con- the complexity of it all, and we want to have that real clear moment. Am I good or not? 
right? I mean, we've said this. I've said this. Have I crossed the line or have I not crossed the line in terms of what we're doing right now? Am I in? Am I out? Like, this is how we relate to sin because as a concept, it's large, it's huge, and it's a problem that's too big to understand. So in that case, let's just bottom line it, make it real quick, streamline it. It's just too messy. Let's clean it up a little bit, clarify it. Let's do all of those things. And I hope this doesn't come as a shock to anyone here online. But sin is outrageously big, right? It's this outrageously giant, over-the-top, out-of-control messiness. That's what sin is. That's what we live into in the context of sin. And if that wasn't the case, you and I wouldn't need a Savior to rescue us from it. If it was as simple as just completing a few tasks on a checklist, then we wouldn't need divine assistance to come in and to be with us. If it was so black and white in our world, we'd be able to fix ourselves. We could do it. But that's the very nature of sin. That's the reason that it cannot be contained within one metaphor at all. But it's breadth and and the way that it expands out into our world and the messiness that it entangles us in, it it puts us in need, uh, in need of a Savior. And we can't just wash our hands and be clear of it, right? can't just wash it up and walk away at the end of the day. And the Pharisees had attempted to do just that. They'd attempted to create a system that would cleanse them from that. It would cleanse them from all all, all of that. And Jesus says, you know what? That's clear. It's clear what you've done. But things are just a little bit more complex than that. Things are a little bit deeper than that. They're a little bit harder to understand. And then he turns back in this moment to the crowds. And this is really where I wanted to land today. It's the reason why I wanted to start in verse 10 and not in verse 1. Because Jesus doesn't waste a lot of time talking to the Pharisees and what they're doing, but he does talk to the group of people who are gathered around him who are victims of this trauma. He does turn to them with compassion and start to talk to them about what's going on in their life. And listen to what he says in verse 10, the second half of verse 10 as he comes up to them. He says, listen and understand. So just be clear. Hear from me. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles it. Let me just break this down for you as clearly as you possibly can. Jesus brings us back to the deepest level of disgust right here. The Pharisees were guarding against this disgust. It's not what you eat. It's not the hands that you eat it with. It's what you vomit. That's disgusting, folks. I want you to be clear about that. This is not the gross thing. This is not the gross thing. That food on the plate is not the gross thing. But if I vomited in the room right now, that's disgusting. And Jesus says, I just want to be clear about that. Right, and we like to clean this verse up. It's not what goes in, but what comes out. I'm like, that's vomit. Like, let's just say what he said. Like, that's what happened in that moment. And Jesus calls that forth. He says, that's the disgusting thing. Whatever comes out is disgusting. And I love how the disciples kind of come into this. You know, Peter in particular, you know, he sticks his foot in his mouth, right? But he comes up to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, do you know the Pharisees took offense at that? <laughs> do you know you ticked them off whenever you said that? They, they took offense at that when they heard what you just said. And Jesus was like, really? I, I had no idea, right? Did I not say it loud enough to make sure to get everybody in the room at that point? I, did I know? Did I know? Yeah, I absolutely know they would take offense at that. But they're the ones who've caused damage. There's another group who are gathered here who have been the victims of that, who felt the trauma of that. And Jesus says, I need to speak to them. And like the audience in the, in the book of Hebrews last week who preferred distant divinity over the incarnate Jesus, the Pharisees who are standing in front of Jesus this day have created a, th- a theology around themselves that has preferred purity over the compassion that you might have for the crowds. And Jesus had the remedy to that. 
He had to remedy that in that moment. He had to do something to fix that in that space. And it's toxic and it's foreign and it's a foreign object that needs to be dislodged and taken up. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say. He does respond to Peter in this moment. And in verse 13, he turns back to Peter and he says, Peter, look, every single plant that my heavenly father has not planted, it'll be uprooted. It'll be yanked up like the foreign object that it is in the midst of this garden that God has created. Let them alone. Don't worry about them. They're blind guides of the blind, and if one blind person guides another, both of them will fall into the pit, right? Their lies will ultimately overtake them in their lives. It'll lead them to their own destruction. I don't need to listen, or I don't need to focus on them. I need to focus on the victims who are gathered in front of me, and I love how Peter jumps back in this way, you know? You could sense it in Peter. He's like, Jesus, you know you ticked them off, right? And then Jesus answers him in this way, and Peter jumps back in. He's like, okay, so what do we need to do, Right? I don't want to be a part of that blind scenario. That's, that's not where I want to be. Am I missing something? Just enlighten us so that we're not missing anything as we go through this. And, and he does use that word enlighten, right, which is an image to light or to sight. He, Jesus says the blind are leading the blind. Peter looks to Jesus and says, why don't you enlighten us? You have the sight that's there. Why don't you bring that into us? And Jesus then turns back to, to Peter and to the crowds, and he says, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer never to be found again. It's basic digestion, man. I don't need to break this down for you in terms of bodily function. It just passes right through you. That's what happens in moments like this. And Peter's like, do we really have to talk about disgusting things once again? Like, we've started with vomit. We have to go to poop. Like, I don't understand why this is the case. But he goes on. Jesus points us back to the center of the purity metaphor in this moment. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. The vomit that you're so disgusted by, you know, the content of that, metaphorically speaking, is what's come out of the heart. And that, that's what defiles us. You see, the metaphor of ritual purity is not so much about the pollutants that get on our hands or the, the food that may be impure and, or that rotted or something like that. The metaphor of ritual impurity or pollution that's deep in our heart, that's where it's getting. That's where it's pointing us to. And Jesus is clarifying for the crowds, the disciples, for you, for me, that purity is a matter of our hearts, not our bodily actions, not what we do with our bodies, not our outward signs or our emotions that we have. It comes from within. And he goes on to say this in 19. He says, from out of the heart come evil intentions, like murder and adultery and fornication and theft and false witness and slander. Out of the heart come these things that are damning to other people. And these, my friends, are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile you. And one last time, as he says this, he looks back at to the crowds. Don't listen to that. To eat with unwashed hands, that's not it, folks. I know they've told you that for a long time. I know you've lived under the weight of that for a long time. I realize that it's probably in your body that you assume that if you don't do this, but that's not it. It's something deeper. God's wanting to do a deeper work in your life to transform you from the inside out. And so this entire metaphor needs to be reworked in this moment because the damage needs to be undone in our lives. And Jesus' attention to both realities is so very important, I think, for the world that we live in today, for the, where we are in this day. Like every generation that's come before us, everyone that has come before, every generation that's come after, we've attended to the call for purity that rests within. We've given it priority. We, just, we demonstrated it this morning with this illustration of soap. It's just built into us, and it rises to the surface. And at times, because of that, we've carried it too far. 
We've gone too far with how we've identified it, and we've done it because we've allowed our disgust responses to take over in certain areas of our life. And I would argue that one of the most painful legacies of the 20th century American Christianity is the purity culture that has come out of it. This emphasis on purity that has actually led to deep damage in people's lives. And and here's how I would define it, and others would define it. Purity culture is built on the idea that contact alone leads to corruption, and avoidance is the only solution. That contact leads to corruption in our lives, and that avoidance is the only solution. And this is how purity culture works at its core, right? Any contact with a pollutant completely corrupts. And so to remain pure, what do we do? We avoid the contaminants. You make sure not to get any of them in in the mix, right? And in this scenario, the amount doesn't matter, right? People have done done surveys on this, like a pool pool water or a pool full of uh, um, wine. That's what it is. They they were like, imagine a pool full of wine, right? If I dumped a, a bottle of urine in the other end of the pool, would you drink it? If I put a small vial of urine in the other end of the pool, would you drink it? Right? And, and the, the amount doesn't matter, right? That's how purity works. The amount doesn't matter ever. Once defiled, always defiled. And that's the point. Once it's defiled, it's always defiled. There's a permanence to this, this, this impure object that's out there. And so this is where we start to run into trouble with the purity metaphor. When we start to take that purity metaphor too far, this permanence, this, this way in which the amount doesn't matter, it can destroy the whole bunch, there's a pollutant that's there, and any pollutant that comes in corrupts the entire thing, this is where the metaphor has gone too far. And it becomes very problematic for us to reel that in. And this is where the metaphor has unfortunately gone within the culture of the church. That's how I would describe it. And, you know, since we're talking about metaphors, I just I felt like I could, I could not do a metaphor. And I, I tried to wait to find a metaphor that would like clean this up, but I didn't, so just here goes. Anna, so, so this is an unsealed bottle of water, right? That's what this is. Now, if I would hand it to any of you, you'd probably drink it, right? Am I fair? Is that fair? Just raise your hand. You'd drink this bottle of water. It's cold. It's nice. It's not dripping, you know, but it's cold, uh, unlike this room, which at least on my end of things is quite hot right now. But things start to change here in a moment. So I open the bottle of water, just crack the seal. Now, if you were to go into a store... Let me ask you this question. I have not taken the lid off. Right. Oh, no, I did. Too bad. Imagine the lid right there, right? I won't put it back on for purity's sake. I mean, we're talking about purity. But if you walked into a store and that seal was cracked, how many of you would pick it up and drink it? There you go. It's gone, right? Now, if you were in the middle of the desert, right, and it was you and me, you would drink it. <laughs> if you're in the middle of the desert and it's you and me, and we're out there, and we've been hiking a good while, and I pull this out of my bag, and I just take a little sip of it. Would you like a sip of this? <laughs> we got Becky. She's the gross one in the room. <laughs> we would. Right? The, the numbers go down. There's something about this. I've, I've drank it. I tried not, my best not to backwash in it, uh, at least that time. But, right, if I... Right? I just put that back in. Becky, how about, how about now? <laughs> Something changes. You heard, this, you heard the shift in the room, right? Now, this is an interesting thing. I could take this bottle of water right here. I could dump it out. I could boil it. The majority of you would still not drink it. Right? All day long, you're sitting in. In fact, you've sat in here. I don't know how much spit you've swallowed while you've sat here, but you've swallowed a bunch of spit. But if I took this up, I've swallowed the same spit all through my sermon. If I took this and drank it again right now, 
freak out, right? There's something that happens, and you wouldn't do it, you'd be all right with it. There's something that happens in our bodies when we start to get that impurity out and once again take it in. And, and again, it doesn't matter how much I put in. It doesn't matter how much I spit into that. The amount doesn't matter. The, the length doesn't matter. What if I left this in my house for a week? Would you come back and drink it later? Would it be better then? No, right? There's a permanence to it. And, and, and again, I, I, I wanted to outline all of this in terms of purity as a metaphor because, again, purity is important. But the extent to which you utilize that metaphor in relationships to sin and grace in your life is also important. And the way to get at the core of what that is is to once again look back at what Jesus is saying to us in Scripture. The one thing that Jesus said, Jesus says, impurity rises from the evil spaces of our heart. It's not what we put in, right? I can drink that back again. If, I'm not going to do it, but that kind of grosses me out. <laughs> like, I can do a lot of gross things, but if I had to drink that bottle right now, it's my own spit. I would freak out at this point, but it's not what I put back in. It's not what you put back in. It's not that contact that you have. And imagine for just a moment the impurity that now rests in this bottle, or at least our perception. This is what the church has done, unfortunately, to countless bodies in our midst. Right? This is where the damage falls. We've now declared these bodies impure, and in so doing, never to be engaged with again. Contact leads to contamination. The only way that we can live a pure life is to avoid them. We've done that. We've done that over and over again, and there are bodies who feel that trauma feel the trauma of isolation, who feel the trauma of being pushed away. And this, my friends, is the end game for, for the purity culture. Some of you in this room may have felt that trauma. Some of you may live into that trauma and you live under the weight of it and you don't even know. It changes the way you act on a consistent basis, but you hold on to that. And this is the single reason that while we live in a world where we say all sin is equal, the truth is, it's not all sin is experienced equally because of this metaphor right here. All sin is, in fact, equal. It is. Christ died for all sin. All sin rests under the weight of that. But it is absolutely true that individuals in our world have participated in things and they have experienced it in very different ways. Not because of the nature of the sin all the time. Sometimes it's the nature of our reaction to it. It's the way in which, you know, my participation here in spitting in this cup was sin. Just imagine the way that I just had that verbal reaction from all of you towards me about that. And the way that we've done that to countless others in our lives. And in Jesus' words, those who were ostracized had often, been, had often been ostracized because of physical actions. And I think the core of this, the place where this rests the most, is certainly around in the church, around issues of sex and the way that we engage with sex and sexuality. And that's where I want to land this today. I just want you to sit with this for just a minute because this is, in fact, the place. Sex and sexuality often get entangled with purity. Are there other sins that should be entangled with purity? Absolutely. They should. The image gets used all over Scripture, and there's an extent to which it should go. In fact, Jesus uses sexual images in his statement, but he also uses a variety of others. But in our minds, culturally, we narrow it down on these. And I just want to say a couple words about this reality before I close. This is the place where I think we need a new path for moral engagement. 
This is the place where I think we need a new paradigm that, that is completely grounded in Christ's work and Christ's work of bringing an inner transformation to us and an inner peace to us. And on the one hand, on the one hand, this is necessary because some of you bear the trauma in your bodies and we need this and you need this and you need to experience that. You need to experience a fullness of life and the church has never offered you that positive life-giving look at sex and what that can be for you. It's focused on remaining ritually pure and what that means is avoidance and don't do that and don't go there. And that, that has led us, unfortunately, to abuse. We see it. I just heard a report the other day out of France that the abstinence and the chastity of the priests in France led to over 200,000 cases of sexual abuse since 1950. 200,000 cases. Now, I'm not going to put it all on the, the church's response theologically. I know there's a lot more to that picture, but that's a big piece of it. That's a big piece of our purity culture that has been passed on and that comes up over and over again and leads to abuse in our lives. And so there are bodies out there, at least in France alone, 200,000 bodies who experience that trauma. We need a new path for that. And so on the one hand, this is necessary because some of us bear that trauma in our bodies and the church has led us to all those sorts of shame. But part of our healing journey, and I believe this with my whole heart, and I believe there really is healing from this trauma, I believe it. I believe you can come out and experience the healing that your bodies need. But part of that healing is coming through a proclamation of how good sex is and how it can be and how it's life-giving and all of the things that get tied up with it. You know, a few, minutes, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about, about that one bodily fluid that we aren't disgusted by. Remember, anybody remember what that is? Tears, right? Tears. Interestingly enough, researchers have discovered that sex as a physical act of the body is also that one in-between act that we participate in that both reminds us of our mortality and flesh and also reminds us that we are something more. It's interesting. It's an in-between action, right? On one level, it's very base. It just helps us reproduce and make sure that the planet goes on with human beings. That's this one very foundational element. And if you think about it in that, those terms, it can you know, just be kind of base and disgusting as an action. On the other hand, there is a deep and intimate connection that occurs in the context of sex and sexuality. And this is the part that reminds us that we are more, that we are something better than that, that it rises above. And, you know, I've thought a lot about this because I think what can happen in, in anybody who's here listening to me or who's online, when you start talking about sex and sexuality, especially if you're like either in the position of saying, oh, I'd like to remain single, you know, I know there's some people out there who like to remain single, or, or there's people who are like widowed or beyond that or something like that, I'm not in that stage of life. You're like, well, this is not for me. And, and I want to broaden this discussion out because Paul broadens this discussion out. Paul actually talks about the marriage, uh, the marriage or the marriage unity as being something that displays to us the mystery between Christ and his church. There's an intimacy that takes place in the context of marriage that functions on a larger level for you and me to understand the intimacy that is in relation between Christ and his church. And I've thought a lot about that this week, about the way that marriage, even though it has a very, again, it's a metaphor, and the metaphor can be between, you know, two, two individuals coming together. It's so much broader than that. And that's one reason why I played, I know it was hard to probably hear the video at the beginning uh, with Slavo Žižek, but it's one reason I chose that video because I've heard him say this countless times. And I love the image that he puts out there of what real deep abiding love is. And I think you can see this so perfectly in the context of intimacy and marriage and relationships, especially that manifest around sex and sexuality. He says this, he says, love, what is love? Love is not idealization. 
means it's not this just perfect, beautiful image of the person that you put out there. That's not really love. Love means that you accept a person with all of its failures, all of its stupidities, all of its ugly points, and nonetheless, he says, that person is absolute for you. It's everything that makes your life worth living. Right? And this is the line that I got to. You see perfection in imperfection itself. And that's how we should learn to love the world. And that, that's really what starts to take place in the context of marriage, right? Because there comes this point on the other side of marriage where you wake up and you're like, your breath is rank, right? That's disgusting. And you still kiss those lips. That's, that also is disgusting. There's something that comes in the context of marriage where imperfections are actually offered more and more each day, and yet you choose to commit to that relationship deeply, to live into it, to embrace all the ugliness all of the out-of-control tempers and all of the spaces that, that are just not for public consumption, right? And you see perfection and imperfection itself. This is the type of love that we can live into. This is the type of morality that can seek perfection in the midst of imperfection. And it can hold in balance that flesh and that soul in the same way that Jesus does. In the same way that Jesus lives to us in that incarnate way and calls us to something greater, but it, it absolutely starts as we start to live under the absolute call of Christ to love God and to love neighbor as self. That's the simple, simple explanation for it all. This is the core of it. To love neighbor as self, not as you would wish them to be, not as you would hope them to be, not to see them as one that is morally abject to the point that you can no longer have contact with, but to see them for all that they are and to say that's beautiful and that's worthy of love. This is the way that God chooses to love you. This is the way that God continues to pour God's self out for you and this is the way that God asks us to engage with each other, to help us rise above the purity culture that has crippled so many and that has done so much damage in our world. As we close here in the next few minutes with one final song, I just want our hearts and minds to do two things. One, I want us to focus, particularly if you're in this space and you felt that trauma in your own life, you once again circle into a space where you can find that healing for yourself. I believe that healing is possible. I believe it can come. And I believe by the power of Christ, it can be present for you. But two, I want you to think about the places in your life where maybe you have lived into the avoidance culture. What are the spaces around you that you just pushed away? Because it's too disgusting. It's impure. And you've kept yourself at an arm's length distance. And God may be asking you to take a step in to demonstrate love that sees perfection and imperfection itself and starts to seek that transformation. We all are in spaces where God is encouraging us to be a part of his work in the world every day. And this is one of those areas where you can be the answer to someone else. You, like Jesus, can look at the crowds and be like, well, let me tell you, whatever they've told you, not true. This is the path that you need to go down. This is the real impact of that, of that passage, of that metaphor of those things. And together we can offer that healing to the world. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace, which is all around us. We thank you for this moment where we can share in celebration of your good work in our hearts. We ask, Father, now 
that you would do that healing work in us. You would cleanse us and transform us. And as we sing this final song, you would encourage us for the road that lies ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.